This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. This podcast is both recorded using and sponsored by Riverside, a cloud-based virtual recording studio that allows remote podcast recording so much easier than any way I've ever tried. In order to get started, all you do is sign up for an account, you create yourself a new session, link that session to whoever your guest is, either through an automatic email or just copying and pasting, and then hit record. And when you're done, each individual file is saved separately. So that means each video track is separate, so you could do nice multicam editing if you prefer to, and each audio track is separate as well, so that you could process each person's audio differently, which is so essential when you have people recording with different types of microphones and different rooms. Processing them separately helps so much. Now, I've had really good luck with Riverside, and I've found it to be much more reliable than every other method I've tried. However, I realize that there are plenty of untrustworthy nerds out there like I am, so let me show you a very cool trick on how to guarantee that you don't lose anything from your recordings. Because there's that old saying, two is one, one is none, and I pretty much live by that for these podcasts because there's no getting back that moment when you're having a cool conversation. So all you have to do in order to have two copies of this, is to fire up any screen recording software that you use and either record just the window or your entire screen and simply make sure the audio is coming through. I've done this for every single Riverside interview I've done and I have never once used any of the local recordings. I always end up using the much higher quality Riverside recordings, except it's just so much nicer for me to know that there is a backup if I need it and it always puts me at ease doing it this way. So by no means am I trying to say you have to, but I just know that there are so many untrustworthy nerds out there like me that would rather have two at the same time. And doing it this way is yet another reason why you would want to use Riverside except instead of just a local copy. Because when you're doing just a local version, it's much harder to get a second copy out there. So if you're interested, please check out the links in the description for 30% off either a multi-month or yearly plan. Just go to retrorgb.link forward slash Riverside and use coupon code RetroRGB30. Okay, let's jump into the interview because this one was a lot of fun and I hope you'll all enjoy hearing from Tor as well. Hey everybody, I am here with developer Tor, uh, who I discovered just a few weeks ago because my friend Stika tagged me in a post on Twitter that showed your very amazing blog entry talking about how you programmed for the Genesis and made your own device for it way yeah. back when, which uh, there wasn't the resources that you have available today. So I wanted to reach out to talk to you and, and uh, kind of hear about your journey and all of that other stuff. So thank you very much for yeah. taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks. So, so my name is Torn Sennis. I'm, 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 you know, plus 50 years old and uh, I live in Sweden, in, north of, in the south of Sweden, you know, cold and rainy mostly nowadays. 
I'm a big fan of Sweden. I've been there only once. I was in Boros in Gothenburg, uh, oh, but okay. one of my my favorite band is In Flames, who is right outside of Gothenburg. So I've uh, uh, you know I've been deep in Swedish culture since uh, 99, 2000, whenever the Clayman album came out. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, you know, I guess the first thing that I want to start with is just how does one back then, you know, pre mainstream internet, pre all of the amazing homebrew resources you have, yeah. how how did you even know to begin that journey? And then could you kind of walk us through what exactly you did? Um, I'll obviously link to your blog post and your social media, but you know, sure, I think sure, a lot sure. of people jumping into this might not have had the time to read right. it yet. And I want to hear it directly from you anyway, because that was really awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Can I share my screen? Absolutely. Okay, great. Let's do that. And um, so I started at a very young age. You know, I got my Wic, you know, Commodore Vic Twenty back then, and I, you know, started programming. And uh, I got a really nice picture here back then. You know, that's me. You know, at the trade uh, computer trade show in in a local local community, and I even took. When I was kind of 11, 12, I took evening classes in basic programming. So me, you know, 12 years old, and then a lot of older guys, you know, learning programming. And so I was kind of pretty kind of obsessed by, by you know, learning and, you know, tinkering with my, my Commodore VIC-20. And then I went to, to the Commodore C64, and then I went to, to the Atari ST. And of course, you know, you start with gaming and you learn, you know, you know, yes, playing games, and then, but then you want to kind of learn more and, you know, look under the cover. So me and my friend, we created a, a kind of a demo group from Vatara SD called um, Sync. So we were kind of a, a bunch of guys, you know, doing various kind of demos and, and applications. I think the first one we made was, uh, <clears throat> uh, one of the first ones we made was kind of, you know, things like that, you know, demos, trying to maximize and trying to <clears throat> get the most kind of capacity and the most extreme kind of effects out of um, the computer. So, of course, to maximize it, we had to use, you know, the assembly language and we had to use, you know, um, all the kind of, you know, bells and whistles of the computer and trying to really, you know, counting clock cycles and trying to optimize and then, you know, trying to 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 beat the other gangs on, on that OS the computer platform. So we we, 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 we you know we went to, to competitions, we, we you know you know middle did a lot of kind of crazy projects uh, on Vatori. And and that Vatori was also pretty kind of open. You know you could you know easily connect things you could make some you know LED light to the flash and you could you know connect other devices to it. And I was also kind of into electronics so I started to do, you know, vibe wrap my own computers, my kind of single board computer chips, and you know, using the 6502 CPU and also the 68000 and 68008 68, CPU, and you know, doing a lot of vibe wrapping and tinkering. So I was pretty good at the electronics and the hardware side, and combining that with the the you know assembly language of the Motorola 68K, I you know you know started to dive more into it and doing a lot of kind of experimentations and, and tinkering, and um, we you know learned that. So I was pretty good at it, and I kind of kind of studying the kind of Motorola engineering kind of 
um, what the, what's kind of now the engineer the Motorola kind of gave out kind of design guidelines and the, the no engineering you know I don't guides or something like that. Yeah, we data sheets and uh, in the um, the suggested ways. I, I'm drawing a blank too because I use them all the time for like the, yeah, the video yeah. chips. But so just to yeah. interrupt for a second. But when you're talking about working on these processors back then, we didn't have uh, sources available like JLC PCB where you could design a you know on free software design your board and then three days later have a whole stack of them appear. You had to use what you just referred to as wire wrapping, where you put it all yeah. on a breadboard. And uh, it looks like just a mess of wires going across it because that's the only option you had. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if it was pretty, I was became pretty good at it. You know, you could, you know, it was almost like a therapy. You know, like a, a mindfulness session. You're doing wire wrapping. You know, you spent the hours, the countless hours of wrapping and wrapping and unwrapping. You know, mistakes <laughs> you made and, and and so on. But it was a kind of pretty kind of rapid. You know, it was very kind of rapid prototyping and then. Allow me to, to still quickly build things. Hmm. So I, I think I, I kind, of, kind of wrapped, you know, you know, hundreds of hundreds of meters of, you know, by wrapping wires over the years. But it was pretty fun, you know, on the lowest level. And of course, having access to PCBs and layouts and then was a challenge. And, you know, eventually I got some friend who could maybe do some etching of a PCB board for me. So I could actually make some, you know, pretty nice, you know, Memory, I mean, roughly nice, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> memory board that you know could you know make more professional and more you know clean and, and so on. But it sure it was a struggle because I did. I mean, it was hard to find the equipment and you know trying to do your layouts and plotting the, the layout on on uh, you know on paper and or on film or you know to etch it. And you know it was very primitive back then. But what's fun, you know, you could do it. I mean. You could do it if you have some connections and then, you know, you you learn the hard way, you know. And if you don't have equipment, you, you basically built it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, all on a breadboard. So all with wire wrapping, with placing the through-hole components on it. And then, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I remember doing projects like that as a kid. Never that extensive, though. Never never to the level that you were doing. But it was, it was fun and it was interesting. And there is like a... Like you were saying, almost like a meditative part of it yeah. where you're sitting there. It's kind of like people who really enjoy doing like cap replacements or soldering jobs where it is just kind of yeah. like, you know, you know, the hours just fly by. You don't even realize how much time's yeah. gone by. So you're in these demo scenes. Uh, you're competing for who could have the most badass demo and who could use the most resources and squeeze the most out of it. So, you yeah. know, even as a kid, you're already gaining the knowledge to start accessing these uh, older platforms, which were, you know, mainstream platforms at the time, of course. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's really cool. You saw I saw one of the things was titled Windjammers Copy Fest or something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> was that was that the name of an know. event that you uh, that you attended? I mean, we did a lot of different events, and uh, you know, um, it was kind of pretty, kind of you know, crazy back then. You know, going to to, to big places like you know, big uh, you know sports arenas, and you have those you know crowded with computers, and and uh, you know, you could you know, you know, you didn't sleep for like forty eight hours or more. You know, <laughs> and it was fun. You know, you were sharing knowledge, you sharing kind of you know games, and sharing kind of you know. And skills and making new friends, you know, it was a pretty, you know, 
nice environment, you know, friendly, and then you know everybody was nice to each other, and you you know you could meet the people you looked up to, you know. So yeah, yeah, that's absolutely so it was awesome. Really kind of amazing time back then, yeah? and when you look back, you know, on those parties, you know, you you had all those you know computers, you know, you 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 couldn't drive to to like you know hundreds of miles to just get there and you know you unpacked your stuff and you know start gaming you know and playing and coding and compete and just having a good time yeah so for anybody listening audio only tor is showing a picture right now that um that hopefully i could link to in the description but it's basically like a sports arena like imagine an ice hockey rink or a basketball rink or something like that where on the floor is exactly what you would expect a bunch of tables and chairs with crt based big computers but even in the stands people were taking pieces of wood and tables and setting them up over other chairs so that the stairs and the chairs you can sit down in the stands and put your computer in front of you like a makeshift desk this is one of the coolest pictures <laughs> seen of that era that is so cool so i uh, i've been to computer meetups but it was never like this it was mostly swap meets and um and the ones that were you know pre uh, pre you know 2000s were, were either swap meets or things that were mostly just sales based with a couple of different hangout sections but this looks awesome this looks like you know something i would have loved to have done as a kid yeah yeah I mean, they look pretty big as well. I mean, I mean, it was kind of, you know, if you look at the pictures here, you know, it's, you know, quite a lot of people, you know, attending those those events, you know. It's yeah. pretty, this is from Norway, uh, the gathering, a pretty famous party back then, you know. So, I, this, this was good old, good old days. <laughs> and was everybody linked together on a LAN? So was this like an original LAN party style? Obviously, it might not have been, I mean, you know. Some were, were, but but it's uh, you know, for Atari, SD, and Amiga, you know, you didn't have a LAN. It was more mm -hmm. like a PC fit. So so, sure you could do some, yeah, rough network using MIDI, you know, a music interface, in some cases. But the Ethernet and networking was not a thing on the Atari back then. Mm. So it was kind of you know you had to swap disk, you know. <laughs> That's yeah. I just I see this as like the uh, the origin of LAN parties, and I was I was trying yeah. to think in my head what back then could you have used to link two computers together, yeah. and I think it probably would have been the majority of just disc copying between uh, yeah. you know yeah. between people. Yeah. So it was fun. So you already have the experience programming for these computer platforms, and now yes. you saw the Mega Drive, and you thought, well, I'd like to program for that as well, but I don't have, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to buy the the dev equipment, and it, I guess you just decided, well, what the heck, I might as well make my own? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, eventually I was exposed to the Mega Drive, so the Mega Drive, you know, nice and, you know, nice machine, you know, and if you open it up, you, you see it's a pretty kind of, you know, you know, uh, pretty kind of, you know, basic circuit board, you know, you have your connector for the, you know, for the cartridges, and you have your big CPU, so basically I start by kind of connecting the dots, you know, between the CPU and the cartridge, you know, what goes where, where, and then, you know, some signals you have to kind of try to figure out, you know, using other techniques, and then... So what, what other techniques were you using when you were trying to figure those out? So, so, so I got a few pins, but I was kind of not sure about 
what they did because we did they did not kind of come from the CPU directly. So kind of was kind of out of the blue. So so of course I need a logic analyzer, but you know with no money, no no equipment. So I decided to build my own kind of uh, logic analyzer using a FIFO buffer buffer, you know, clocked by the CPU of uh, clocked by the CPU clock. So I was kind of uh, uh, training to, to start, you know, uh, recording the signals um, when the CPU is, uh, got get a reset signal. And then I was kind of sampling for like two kilobytes of, of data. And then I could, could uh, you know, extract it to my Atari SD computer and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of the purpose was for a different pin in, in correlation with the other ones that I knew, like the address strobe and read-write and, you know, the other kind of clocks on the CPU. So, you know, you, you have to kind of do it, you know, try to find, you know, your, your way of doing it. Uh, but basically, the, the games are pretty kind of simple. It's just like kind of a ROM cartridge. And what I wanted to, to do was kind of replace this one with... Uh, uh, a memory board that mm-hmm. holds about you know one megabyte of RAM, and then trying to kind of you know using some some techniques, adding some kind of you know um, firmware like a boot up firmware. So I have some firmware here, but you know when the Mega Drive starts up, it would kind of listen and wait for a binary dump from my, from my Atari ST, mm-hmm. and then to run that dump. When it arrives to, to the to the Mega Drive, so basically I was kind of trying to do, to replace the the ROM cartridges with you know a static RAM, you know, and uh, uh, you know air prompts for for you know storing the, the firmware. Uh, so it boots. And when up you were uh, when you were designing that cartridge board that you held up, the one that you just made, yeah. so. Um, you kind of approached it as, all right, well, the, uh, the the games themselves, the cartridges on those is just a ROM chip with a little bit of circuitry around it. So yes. that's how you were able to just somewhat reverse engineer in the fact that, okay, well, you know, these trace out to these cartridge pins so I could fill this with my own components. So yeah, 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 yeah. Pr- probably doing that part of it was easier much easier than figuring out how the Genesis itself worked and how to analyze sure. the signals going in and out, I'm assuming. So. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. Sure. But, uh, so, so, so basically it's, it's kind of just like kind of a replacing the ROM with a static RAM and, and some firmware. But of course, you know, it takes time and you, you're tinkering and trying to find, you know, a good, you know, how do I, you know, do it in a good, clean way. And so it took some, some time to do, of course. And, and uh, but the journey, I mean, I think the journey is the most fun, you know, getting there. And eventually it worked. So I was able to get hold of the kind of documentation for the for the CPU. I mean, the, all the registers and hardware, graphics modules in the Mega Drive. So I could eventually get some, you know, sprites moving on the screen, controlled by the joystick, and that worked. So, so, but then, you know, I actually had a few, you know, customers wanted to buy it, but... I never kind of got around to, to, to finalize, it, finalize it into a more, you know, kind of you know, commercial thing. But, you know, it was a fun journey. And it I, you know, learned a lot by doing it. You know, all the hours spent tinkering and short-circuiting in my Mega Drive, you know, it's kind of pretty amazing how robust it is. It is, you know, I 
can't count how many times I can short circuit the pins here and there, and it still kind of works today. Mm -hmm. um, so the model Mega Drive you had, did that have the TMSS security on it that you had to get around, or did that just boot directly into the game so you didn't have to worry about it? It did not have any security at all, so it was kind of just purely kind of standard 68,000 CPU kind of boot sequence, so that one I knew, so it kind of was pretty kind of simple to do. To, to make my own firmware and, you know, allow it to, to, to me to, to download and, you know, do some basic debugging on, on the Mega Drive. That's cool. You got lucky then because if you had just gotten a slightly later model, one yeah. of the ones that booted with the produced and licensed by Sega Enterprise, um, you would have then had an entirely new step to get around that in order to yeah. bypass the uh, the encryption. But without that, so you were basically just able to run it in a mode where it detected a game there, and then you were able to use your Atari ST computer to send it commands and, and make it do a yeah. few things. That's very cool. And it just, I mean, that image, that mental image alone, using an Atari ST to write and control a game on a Sega Genesis Mega Drive, like that alone is, you know, just retro gaming nerds, brains are exploding just here. And there. Yeah. So that is so cool. Um, now, did yeah. you, you said you developed uh, mostly proof of concept um, and did it as a learning experience, but did you ever yeah. end up making any software that ran on the Mega Drive that was not, no, that was I, past I your test? I started my university studies um, shortly after, you know, I completed it. So then I kind of went into other, other projects and other journeys. Uh, but so, so I never kind of, I mean, got I wanted to, to commercialize it or, you know, make some games on it. I would love to, but, you know, I didn't have time, you know. I had some mm -hmm. other priorities and some other projects to, 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 you know, that I jumped into instead. Yeah, I hear you. So, I mean, that that is that is awesome that, you know, just the, a kid that was able to use what you had in front of you to figure that stuff out. And I love using the CPU clock to make your own logic analyzer. To, I mean, you're basically yeah. using the, the console itself to debug and figure out how the console's working. That was such an, that was a cool idea. I like that. That's uh, any hardware engineers, I guess even software engineers listening are smiling <laughs> as soon as they heard you say that. Yeah. That's, that's a cool thing. So, so, so the challenge was was when kind of you know, so I made up quite a few prototypes, uh, you know, um, all kinds of um, prototypes, you know, wire wrapped, and then one here was kind of based to, to kind of plug into it, you know, vertically up like that. Mm -hmm. But then eventually, I went to an operation more and uh, more like a, a dual kind of card uh, approach. I don't know it's a bit, you know, a bit ugly still, but you know, basically doing a more let me see here, um, like that, and then trying to something like that, you know, trying to, to get it down without breaking the, the, the kind of the, you know, <laughs> the CPU circuit board. So it was kind of pretty big, you know, you know, trying to find, you know, a good kind of I want kind of a good separation of concerns. You know, I wanted to have a memory board to be purely a memory board and then have my kind of firmware and logic on a separate board and trying to kind of, okay, how do I kind of combine them in a good, sensible way that, you know, you know, that didn't kind of break the, the, the circuit board under stress or similar things. So a lot of kind of, you know, experimentations, you know, doing various kind of cards and, you know, 
trying to, to find a good kind of, you know, good architecture of, of and, and a good design. That, so um, the final design was a two board design or a three board design? Yes. Two board. Two I mean, board. Okay. One one okay. Uh, kind of uh, vertical board like that just to kind of you know go into the Mega Drive, and then you know it connects to the main logic board, and then you you plug the memory board into the, the kind of you know top circuit here. So basically, it would look something like. Uh, so two boards and an adapter, then. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. That is very cool. <laughs> that is very, very, very cool. Yeah. And just to think, something like that, you know, if you, if you wanted to redesign that today, you could use free software to do that and have that on a board yeah. that's probably one yeah, inch yeah, by yeah. one inch or something like that, just to. And uh, some FPGA, and you know, trying to, you know, all in one shape almost. Absolutely. But, but, but wow, that's, that's, that is almost like cheating, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, compared to the way you did it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, the knowledge that you gained from doing that led you on to a bunch of other projects as well, where you were able to take that and apply that to other things that you did. I know you mentioned some Atari projects as well, correct? Yes. So, you know, back then, you know, one project that we did was kind of for Atari Lynx. So Atari reached out to us and, and uh, because they had a problem, because they couldn't get good kind of screenshots of the games for for magazines because they're due to the reflection and all that. So basically we we made us a small tool to you know first of all we get we got a, a brain a memory dump of, of a running game and we could from that uh, memory dump extract uh, the, the screenshot of a game running game. So we could then convert it to, to an image file that then could be kind of printed in the magazines. So that is incredible. Match. Yes. So so uh, if I don't remember, I mean, if I don't kind of, if I remember, if I remember correctly, the the hardware development kit for the Lynx was an Amiga, a special customized Amiga machine. So we got hold of a memory dump from it, and then you know, on Atari we made a tool to kind of trying to locate where's the brain dump in memory because you could look at the patterns of the binary data oh there's an image so you could kind of get in that kind of alignment to get the, the, the kind of screenshot and it worked so it was pretty pretty fun um, so so the process would basically be that the reviewer would would get the game in the exact spot that they would want it to be and then yeah. so now you have a links with all of these wires coming out of it right um so, so, so am, I, am uh, I getting that correct or sorry? Uh, I think, you know, I don't remember exactly, but we, we made the tool so Atari themselves could kind of, you know, use the, the, the Linux development kit, extract and play a game, extract, uh, you know, a memory dump, and then we could use our tool to, to, to find out the, the real picture. And how? what would trigger the memory dump? Did you, like, build a button on that, or was it just constantly uh, I, reading I, data? I, we never did that part. We just kind of got the dump, and we made the tool to, to, to extract the, the screenshot on the links. So Interesting. It was a pretty kind of small kind of um, uh, project. That is really cool, because a lot of the times, 
Because, you know, I'd, I'd gotten to know some people who worked in magazines back then, and they said they would often have rigs that they would build so that they could take pictures of the screen, but it was very hard to yeah. photograph, and yeah, they were yeah. trying different tricks and stuff. But I, even as a kid, I remember some magazines had pictures that looked great and others didn't. So I guess somebody yeah. was using tools like that to to extract the image yeah, and change yeah. that into an image file. So that that's really cool. I never thought of doing it that way. But yeah, they, you know, you could extrapolate the image from the memory dump data at the time. Yeah, yeah. That is pretty neat. Yes. So it, it did you do that for any other platforms as well, or just no? Yes, just for that kind of a some kind of a small side project. It was pretty fun, you know, trying to, to be get exposed to to, to uh, you know the links platform, and then, you know, just kind of as a, as a kid, you know, it was kind of a dream to to go and visit a terrorist uh, headquarters in, in Paris, France, and you know, seeing the equipment and talk to them. Kind of wow, you know, it was kind of pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I also, um, also saw I also saw a working prototype of a, an Atari ST laptop. Oh wow, really? Yes, yes. Did they I ever make that? Made, no, I really never made it, but I, I saw one, so it was pretty, pretty kind of. Uh, so would that have been early nineties then? Uh, yes, nineties, about ninety. Yeah, yeah, could be. I'm trying because I remember. I remember in the early 80s, a portable computer was essentially a, the full desktop computer with a little 8-inch CRT yeah. in it. So it was not really portable, but the yeah. only thing portable about it is you didn't have to take the monitor and the computer. You just took the computer. Um, but once you got into the 90s, I think so it was a little bit more. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so, so. That's kind of what I was expecting. Yeah, so <laughs> pretty fun, you know. Absolutely. It would be amazing if I actually made it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, what other projects have you done? Um, I, I believe you said you'd worked on one other Atari project as well, correct? Yes. So, I mean, I, we, me and a friend, we developed a soundtrack for the Atari ST. So a soundtrack is like a music playing program for the Atari and Amiga. It looks like that, and you can, you know, make your, you know, music and, you know, using four channels, and you had, you know, sound effects and samples you could, you know, play. Um, this was a pretty popular way of, of making music back then. So we actually kind of, you know, sold it and, uh, you know, published it in and sold it in the store. So I actually have some physical, you know, things that I think is pretty kind of uh, fun to have, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So people um, would buy that software to, in order just to create music. So it's like a, just yes. a music creation software. Now, would that use yes. MIDI and an external keyboard, or could you use no, the keyboard uh, or both? Or I think you made it just on, on the keyboard or on the computer keyboard. Uh, so no, no, no MIDI involved. Um, instead, you made it on on the computer, and, and you could you know have four tracks, and then you could make you know sound effects, and then uh, you know it was pretty kind of interesting project to make absolutely i um i love music and uh you know i want to be a musician myself and i'm always so impressed at all the people who do who still today do music and soundtracks on older platforms because yeah. they kind of using the limitations of those platforms have to come up yeah. with some really creative ways to get some awesome music the uh musician remute does that a lot now he's done <laughs> you know seven different consoles where he writes his albums directly on there yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very cool i should uh pass him along your software and see if he could yeah. <laughs> write a song with it now yeah 
that that is i mean i just i'm always in awe at stuff like this you know you went from being a kid at these giant meetups learning you know doing everything you can to learn all this stuff to getting flown out or to atari to be able to help them get screenshots to then making your own software for the platform i mean this is talk about a career path right (laughs) but but i think the fun thing is that that you you know you know you start something but you never know where you will end up you know you just can start doing something and you you don't know. You don't know the goal. You're just gonna, you're just gonna, just you know, just do it. You know, and then you know, eventually, oh, yes. it did, uh, you know, succeed or oh, it failed or you know. But I think you just to have the courage and just do things. If you believe in it, you should just do it. Uh, and um, one other project I did after the Mega Drive was that you know, I, I uh, made some friends. We bought a CD-ROM. Uh, right or back then, you know, it was kind of pretty big box, you know, uh, that you know you used to, to to write your CD-ROMs. So, so basically, I, I eventually created kind of two CD-ROMs called Programmer Seven, One, and Two. So because because I had a lot of kind of you know source codes and tools and document tutorials, you know, on my on my you know hard drive. So I thought you know. And I also had a BBS back then, so I had a, I had a good collection of you know, good you know source codes, tools, utilities, documents, tutorials, text files. So I thought you know, why not compile it and make a compilation CD? So those two you know CD-ROMs uh, eventually you know uh, was pretty popular. Kind of I sold in the US through Infomagic was a kind of a CD-ROM. Um, reseller, you know, publisher back then. And um, so I made those two, you know. So uh, so eventually the first one I just made, you know, and, you know, sent it to the factory for printing, you know. So I got back, you know, a, a truck came back, you know, a few weeks later with, you know, a thousand CD-ROMs to my student dorm room. And, you know, <laughs> I had this pile of, 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 you know, CDs on the floor and, you know, now what, you know, what should I do, you know? So basically, okay, I need to sell them, you know? I had no plan, but, you know, okay, let's start make a website, start, you know, online kind of e-commerce, you know, some advertisement in magazines and some trade shows and finding some resellers. So it was pretty well, you know, so uh, uh, quite a bunch of them, and I sold all of, all of them, and I also made a second one, and that was pretty good back then, you know? When people did not have the internet still, so, so people were actually buying CD-ROMs. But eventually, I, you know, was tired of the CD-ROM business, so I went. I so I thought, you know, hmm, the web, internet, let's kind of upload everything online. So, in '96, I I made my my first website called Programmer Seven, and um, and I was doing it, you know, as a, you know, at the evenings, you know on my spare time, building it, you know, maintaining it and doing all the kind of, you know, all everything from the kind of DevOps, I mean, deployment to, to hardware to, to, you know, buying servers and co-locate them in, in the US and, you know, the hosting and, you know, so you learn the, the full trade of, of, you know, what it takes, what it, you know, takes to, to, to operate a website, you know, the SEO, you had, you know, you know, domain names and uh, <laughs> Kind of yeah, I'm laughing because I know exactly exactly the growing pains yeah. that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know. And you, you were kind of 
I went to sites like, I can't remember the name, Ubit, you know, trying to find, you know, good bits on, you know, Dell servers and, you know, have them shipped to my co-location uh, provider in the US, you know, for hosting it, you know. So it was a pretty fun time. And, and then around 2000, I got the advertisement deal. So I could actually kind of quit my day job and work on this website full time. So I spent, you know, eight years full time maintaining it, building, you know, selling, updating this website. So I had like a half a million visitors a month on this website. And then I sold it in like 2008, just before, you know, Stack Overflow came into a picture and, you know, killed the kind of independent websites. I mean, yeah, I, I do have to just back up for a second and remind everybody that that's half a million visitors a month in the mid 2000s before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket and was online every day. So, I mean, I don't know what that would translate to hits today, but it's got to be at least double, right? It would be yeah. equivalent to somebody today having a million or two million yeah. hits a month. So that that's, you know, that that's a popular website. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and back then you could actually see your own kind of Google ranking. So I had a... Google rank of eight of 10, you know, so it was pretty kind of big, uh, you know, SEO kind of, you know, authority. So people were actually kind of asking me to, 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 can you please link to me? You know, here's some money, you know, please link to us. You know, it was, you know, good business back then. <laughs> yeah. That's back when Google was a search engine and not a yeah, surveillance yeah. and tracking company. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, do not evil, you know, do no, you know, don't be evil, yeah. you know, like it. Yeah, now it's don't be evil unless it affects the bottom line, and then we're going to yes. turn the other cheek and pretend it never happened. But, <laughs> huh, man, that, that's awesome. You know, I've um, I had my first website in '96, talking about as as funny and embarrassing as this is, the same thing I do now. The middleman between really smart people writing software right. emulators and you know t teach or telling people about it, and um, funny too. I, I was always in IT, so I did. I called it PC tools after a software that I used in like 85 when I was a little kid. I'm sure it was still existed then, but I didn't sell it because most of it was free and open source, but there was a few things that I may or may not have copied and put on there myself, <laughs> which I was 16. So, you know, it's not like I was selling these off the back of a truck. I was passing it along to my friends, but my CD burner was the size of a normal CD-ROM drive. And when you yeah. got your CD burner, it was probably the size of... At, at its smallest, it might have been a bookshelf speaker, but it was probably closer to a mid uh, a mini tower PC, right? Yeah, it was more like a VHS VHS player, you know. Movie oh, player. okay. That's you had one size. of the wider ones then. All right, yes. yeah. Uh, I definitely I mean, remember yeah. seeing those, and in, uh, in blank yeah. discs were like, I think they were twenty dollars a piece or something like that. They were pretty expensive. I think we paid like you know almost like eight nine dollars. A disc, and then you, you know, crashed a few, you know, on the way, and you know, failed burning. So you had quite a lot of kind of, you know, damaged discs. But you know, back then, you know, my first website, I was using the kind of, you know, the famous Matt's CGI scripts, you know, Perl scripts for two of my first website. It was kind of pretty, kind of, you know, it worked, but was kind of pretty, kind of terrible, and I. Hardly understood anything. It was kind of written in Perl and, and, you know, but kind of just random, you know, things. But, you know, it kind of built my first website. And then, you know, and then I, you know, made it all by myself, you know, make my own form, forum software and, you know, 
my own kind of my own kind of back end and you know and uh, did all by, by myself. But it was a fun journey, you know, kind of you know you know getting your getting your hands dirty and trying to kind of do everything from the kind of server maintenance to 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 to, to you know building a website and learning the back end and you know learning security and, and and so on. So it's kind of it was a big fun project back then. Yeah, I, I agree. I unfortunately forgot all of that knowledge, but and yeah. for a while there, I think in the early 2000s, I hosted my own server out of my house once we switched over to yeah. cable modem from dial up. Before yeah. that, I didn't, you know, it, I was very limited to the stuff that I could do, but it's just, yeah. it was such a cool experience going through all of that and the, the yeah. steps that you go through, the things that you learn. I applied all of that knowledge to everything I did afterwards in life. Yeah. So it was, you know, even though you could say that all the stuff I did then in that period was really kind of useless, it, Maybe in and about itself it was, but the everything I I took away from that's been applied to everything else I did. So it's kind of cool to see other people going down that same journey with this stuff. But but, but I really feel think that all the kind of principles from back then still applies today. I mean, when you go to the cloud, you still have to think about the kind of you know, you know, latencies and you know, uh, transaction speeds and you know, reliability and then you know, all the kind of principles still holds today you know the same as mm, back absolutely. then you know you but you i think you're almost like a, a bit you know spoiled today because you you create some cloud service but you don't think about you know transactions and uh, you know the latencies and the cost and you know and all the kind of fundamental principles for how do you actually make something work well you know i think the yeah you know, I feel like technology as a whole is the same way now because like for for music is a great example in that, you know, the tools that you have today, like I use a Motu M4 to, to both the, for speaking now and to record my guitar yeah. and this going into Reaper, which, you know, I, I paid for my copy because I support yeah. software developers, but you don't have to if you don't want to. You could record a guitar into this and have it processed at a studio, and it's identical in every way to recording your guitar directly in that studio. And this thing costs like 250 bucks, and you can get $100 ones that are probably just as good. So I'm completely spoiled in that I didn't need to have any of the knowledge that you would need to really record a guitar before this. And because of that, it allows so many more musicians to record and so many more musicians to get out there. But the two things are there now that there's so many, there's, you know, less to go, less people have time and money to go around buying it all. And at the same time, a lot of those things that you learned going through those like, you know, how to put the microphones in front, which is the same as how to set up your, you know, the back end of your yeah. server. All of that learning why you do things the way you do, not only did it affect the music, it gave you the knowledge to understand how it all comes together. So it's the same thing. You could go on Squarespace now and you could put together a website that looks like something that would have cost 20 grand back in 2000. Yeah, and you don't need to know anything other than how to drag and drop and cut and paste and you know, it's both amazing, but people do, hopefully at least a small group of people need to yeah. understand and take the time to know what goes in the back end of stuff. So but, but I also think that we get more and more abstractions nowadays. There's more kind of layers of abstractions between bundling hardware and, and the things we make. So, you know, when you talk about database, you know, you go through some library and it's like magic works, but you don't really understand, you know, the, the kind of, interaction between your application and the database and how your queries, 
impacts performance and you have no idea and you don't have a feeling for for how it ticks. It's like yeah, if you talk like a compare a Tesla to, to a, an old motor because you can hear the motor and you can hear if the spark plugs doesn't kind of work properly and you can hear if it's not aligned. But if you have a Tesla, you know, you haven't you don't hear anything. It just kind of just works. And then you know you don't have the feeling of, of you know the mechanics of, of how things work under the hood. So nowadays I, I work as a teacher and trainer and trying to really kind of you know explain I mean you don't know anything until you can explain to someone else. So that's my I think my principle. So in my teaching I always try to, to kind of lift you know the, the remove the layers and really go deep down to really get a good fundamental picture and mental picture of how things actually work because if you don't understand it you you can't you know do it properly you know it's all for for example like security or performance you know if you don't understand the security principles of, of a website today you will be hacked you know in minutes mm. you know it's funny there's an old saying um teachers can't do and doers can't teach or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and i i actually i think it's it's not quite true in that it takes people who understand exactly what it is they're doing to teach the teachers so yeah. for your job and your position you know you have to fully understand what it is that you're trying to teach people yeah, yeah, and somebody who's a really good teacher could just absorb the knowledge that yeah. you've given them and then they go and teach other people how to do it because yeah. they, they know exactly how to talk to people. They could look yeah. at somebody and get yeah. through to them and see who's understanding and who's not. So I actually think it's a combination of things is there's always the, the, the middlemen teachers like, like us that have to <laughs> understand the concepts and then get them out to the people, you know, the, the general teachers of it. So it, it is kind of funny to see that, but you're right. And that's a problem. It's a very good problem to have, but it's a problem I run into all the time in that uh, I've even asked some people who I, I speak to and I, I talk about their videos and stuff to come and write their own segments about it on RetroRGB.com because I pretty much get what they're talking about, but yeah. not on the level that they do. So yeah. I want them to come in and write the post so that I could do a better job teaching people. Yeah. So I get to I get to live both roles. I get to be the person that fully understands the project and teaches the people who go out and teach everybody else. And I also get to be the person that just, you know, can can reread a paragraph really charismatically without quite <laughs> understanding what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think the challenge is about this so many new developers coming into the market and then starting to get their first job. And then, you know, I think it's a big, still, you know, big challenge for a new, for a new developer to, to really kind of grasp it all. You know, we have spent, you know, like, you know, from in my case, almost 40 years, you can learning the trade. And, you know, I know how a database works and I know how a web works. And, you know, I can relate things. But if you're a junior developer coming into the market, you know, there's so much things you have to learn, you know, the database and you have the HTTP and the web and the security and all the JavaScript and backend, frontend. And, you know, you know, it's a big topic, you know, and I think the kind of knowing it all is impossible. You know, you have to kind of actually ignore, okay, but for, from my point of view, you know, JavaScript, I would never be good at it. So I would never kind of bother learning it. So, but I like the backend, I like the security part of things, but... I just realized that React, Angular, 
I will never be good at it. So I don't I will not bother learning it because I will never be good at it. But the back end I really, really enjoy. So I will I will stay there, you know, doing back end APIs for services, that's fun. I think with, with all fields like the uh, all technology fields that are growing at the exponential rate that they are, yeah. I, I think that if you're young getting into this, or I shouldn't even say young, it's just if you're inexperienced in a, in something, dive directly in and then figure out what other info you need. And I think a story that punctuates this, a little scary, but, but really well, is that there is one chip that I think it was Texas Instruments makes and a company bought like 50,000 of them and said, hey, we're, we're using it for this application and none of the chips are working. We thought it could be a bad manufacturing run, so we bought another one. We use it for this exact use. Can you help us? And Texas mm-hmm. Instruments came. I think it was them. So please, you know, if I get the wrong company, don't sue me, TI. But uh, I, the company came back and said, um, actually, that chip was designed by a legacy team. And nobody here now understands how that works. Mm-hmm. So your your company is the only company using it for this one specific thing. Everybody else uses it for you know something that it does work. So yeah. we can't help. Uh, we don't know if the chip's broken. We don't know if it was never able to do that. You know the person is long gone who designed it, and we don't know how to reverse engineer it. So it's you know it's it's a a good punctuation to your point, but it's also a little scary in that we need people to go back and be experts in all of these things. So not everybody doesn't have to be an expert in everything, but if sure. you're really into this stuff and you love it and you think, all right, that's my niche, learn about it and teach other people about it. And, and even if you're a terrible teacher, which no offense, I work with a lot of people <laughs> who stink at teaching other people what they know, yeah. but have patience then. Understand that you're not the world's best teacher, so teach people who are and, and get this stuff out. Otherwise, yeah. it's just going to get lost forever. And you know, a lot of these, it, it's start to scary to think that, you know, our grandkids might wake up one day and something something important stops working because everybody who designed it's dead and no one knows how to keep it. No one knows how to redesign it. They just know how to keep it maintained. You know, I really think that, that from, from, from my own point of view, if I kind of want to learn something new, I really kind of, kind of, let's be like training class in my topic. So I started for, for a few years, um, learning about the open ID connect, uh, OAuth tokens, OAuth authentication, authorization, and it was kind of really kind of a deep rabbit hole by itself. So okay, but but you know, I will wait. I, I was kind of get a request from companies. So can can help us with that, this topic? And you know, kind of hmm, maybe maybe not. But so I can okay, I will build a training class in that topic because then I need to kind of pick it apart try to break it down into kind of, you know, manageable pieces and then learning piece by piece and trying to, to experiment and tinker and, you know, create a good training material. So eventually I, I can build quite a few training classes in that topic. But on that, on that journey, I learned it, you know, good enough so I could explain to someone else, I could help companies coaching them. And I also kind of, you know, to really kind of... Uh, improve my skills. I also kind of started on the Stack Overflow kind of, you know, for two years ago on that topic of, of, of you know, identity and, you know, OpenID Connect, OAuth, trying to kind of answer on helping others. Because you, if I can explain to someone else, you know, I really kind of, you know, repeat it and then, you know, you learn it as you kind of practice. 
So I think, you know, practicing in different ways, you know, training, creating training material, answering questions, giving, you know, webinars in a topic, you kind of repeat the topic over and over again. And then eventually, you know, oh, and obviously this is simple now, but back then, you know, it was kind of pretty kind of, wow, you know, big, big rabbit hole. Yeah. Do you ever go back into uh, into things that you've done, into training sessions that you've written? Like, do you ever Google the answer to a question and then the answer is something you wrote, you know, years ago and you totally forgot it? Yes. What a strange feeling because I have a very good memory. Like, I'll remember somebody will say something and I'll go, oh, yeah, I was four years old and they were wearing this shirt and we were in this room and people look at me like, you know, that's weird that you remember all those details. And then... Uh, on the flip side of things, I'll be like, hmm, I wonder uh, I wonder if anybody's ever done this before. And there's like a seven-page write-up that I did detailed with yeah, every yeah, single yeah. thing that you need to know that I go, I don't remember a, th- a single yeah. thing about this. <laughs> so, so basically, my, my, when I make training classes, it becomes my own kind of private notes, you know. So I can go back to my mm-hmm. training material and, uh, oh, that is how that worked, you know. So, so it becomes my notes and I organize in a nice, clean way, you know. And with a nice, good structure. So, so I really think, you know, if you want to learn something new, try to make a training material. And even if you don't never teach it to someone else, but having it in a, in, a, in, a, in a nice kind of clean way and breaking it down into kind of, you know, small, small pieces that, you know, you learn by, by doing, you know. Mm. No, uh, that, that for me personally, um, I am not the type of person that could read a book and then start doing it. I have to start doing it and then read the book. And then, and then all of a sudden the pieces immediately start to fall into place, but I can't just absorb the info and then and know how to do it. And I have a lot of friends who can, and I don't think there's a, a right or wrong way. I think it's whatever's right for you personally is the right way to do it. So, so for example, I kind of, you know, for, for many kind of years, uh, for, Sometimes I okay, I need to kind of learn about kit, kit, you know, the version controller. And I really kind of want to kind of deep dive deep into kit and really, really understand it, you know. So I mean you you start making this this kind of slides and presentations about you know how things is connected and you know this is my kind of mental notes and you know I can go back and you know read my old kind of material and you know, oh that is how it works. And then you can follow the kind of thread you know along how how things you know are connected and you know. So that's how I learn nowadays, you know, big material, you know. So Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, do you put any of your talks or your discussions online or are they mostly, uh, are you mostly just hired by companies to go out and do private training sessions? I do mostly for, for companies uh, uh, training nowadays. I did some at some schools earlier, but nowadays it's mostly for companies. I do have, you know, maybe one or two webinars online, but mostly you know, private for companies or open, you know, classrooms for, for, you know, for companies. Interesting. One of the best sessions I've ever taken in my life, I think it was a Windows 2000 administration course. And it was somebody who was a little bit in the middle. Um, companies would hire them to do this, but it uh, it would also be you know, you could sign up if you wanted on your own, but it, I, it was just the way the person presented the data and and how they did it and what the, the the tools that they showed just you know the, the same way you are with a slideshow it's you know not that they had any magical stuff with them i learned so much in that two day session i learned yeah, yeah. more than 18 months of a you know yeah. uh, of a, a 
an accredited college course or whatever you want to call it. So it's just, I always, um, I, I always listen when people say that they're trainers and they do stuff like that because, yeah. you know, it, some of the best training sessions out there come in that same yeah. form, you know? But, but I really think, you know, if you can break it down and, you know, to make your own kind of mental model, how, how things relate, you know, you know, then, you know, it's easy, easy to, to explain to someone else because, you know, you'll always meet a junior developer, you know, and you need to explain it. And if you can't explain it, you know, you, you know, you know, you know, you maybe feel stupid, but I really think that, you know, being, being able to explain things, you know, is important, you know, if you are senior and trying to, to help others. So I really can enjoy the, the kind of the training side because then you, you know, have to repeat things, you have to deep dive deep into concepts and really kind of, look under the hood how things works and uh, you know how does the compiler things about some coding statements for example so i really think it's it's you know pretty a good way to keep and stay current at that my at my age you know i'm you know 51 years old and you know i want to to be on the cutting edge and, and doing training and creating training material is a good way to to stay current you know being you know being attractive on the market, you know? Yeah, the, those are all good points. And, and that's something that, um, yeah, I guess that's a personality trait that everybody that I looked up to when I was c coming up in my first couple jobs all had. And that, you know, while I did, I don't mean to be offensive, but while I did work with that stereotypical grumpy IT guy a million times oh, yeah. over who just, they knew what they knew. They, yeah. you know, they hated everybody. They didn't want to talk to anybody. They just, they were terrible <laughs> explaining stuff. They got mad at you for asking questions. There was a lot of those in every company, but in every single place that I worked, there was always a group of people or at least one or two that at any age, I think the guy that I first apprenticed under was like 67 years old yeah. and he knew everything he was still up on all the new technology coming out he mm. loved it the same way he did when he was a kid he was just was so passionate about it and even though it didn't all get applied he was a little too old school we would do manual tape backups to every single computer <laughs> one at a time because he didn't like doing things over the network this is in 2001 yeah. by the way yeah. so it's a little you know he was a little <laughs> little late to the party with that one but it's still yeah. the, the passion for learning was al always yeah. there and it it was just something that excited them, whether or not they did it for a living. And that's, yeah. you know, but, but, uh, that's definitely really, what I want to continue. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But I really think that, that you know, as, as an IT guy, you know, you, you might personally, before I went into the kind of training side, I was kind of scared, you know, I, I don't want to do training, let the pros do it. I was kind of, I actually started a training company for like 11 years ago. So in the beginning, I didn't, did not want to do training at all because now my voice is not so good and, you know, uh, I'm scared to speak in front of people. But then you, you know, the things you're afraid of, you should try to do more often, you know. So I actually started to do some smaller training and, you know, eventually kind of, wow, this is fun. So I think, you know, this is, you know, always kind of a pretty kind of stereotypical, you know, shy, introvert, you know, IT nerd. But, you know, trying to, to expose yourself, you know, going to meetups, doing some talks, and of course, in the beginning, you will fail and your slides are terrible. But but still, you know, I think, you know, you know, getting out there, trying to present, you know, you, you will grow as a developer and, and a person by, by to, to challenge yourself to speak in front of others. And now I kind of, I really love it, you know. Yeah, you know, that's the second time you brought that point up. And that's something that I live by and that just 
do it. If you want to do it, just do it. And, and that's, you know, the this website that I started, you, you also mentioned, you know, starting something, not knowing where it goes. The website started as a Google Doc that I thought three or four of my friends might like. I had no idea I'd end up 10 years later talking to developers around the world that I look up to. Uh, and, and the same thing, even with just doing interviews and podcasts, I just yeah. one day I was like, I said, I'm going to do it. So I'm just going to do it. Let's yeah. just start and see what happens. And I'm sure my first couple were horrible, but, you know, they're, they're less painful now. <laughs> Yeah, but eventually you know you can stand in front of people. You you can speak for days about topics. You know weeks. You know no problems. But but you in the beginning I was really really shy. You know oh it will not work. But now you know it's fun. You know it's it's not a problem to speak. You know in front of people. So I you know a message to to all your IT guys. You know try to challenge yourself. You know find a local meetup. Do get involved. Do some presentations. I really think you. Grow as a person. I agree 100%. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to stop doing what you're doing and become a trainer, but just put put yourself out there. And, you know, I think one of the common trait in this is I don't think a lot of people realize how likable they are. I think a lot of people that I deal with just see themselves as that introverted, you know, retro gaming nerd. And obviously, I'm using the word nerd as a compliment. I am a huge nerd myself, but they see themselves as that. And they just they assume that they're not going to get along with other people, and then you yeah. throw them in full of, in a room full of people. I always love doing this too, and, and everybody's friendly and everybody's getting along, and it's it's very cool to see the look on their face as like, oh yeah, all right, this is fun. I could do this. This is neat. I like people. But but I think most people also maybe don't understand the time and effort it takes to make a good training material. You know, maybe, maybe building good exercises and good presentations, and you know good demonstrations it's really really hard work so i spent countless hours and nights and weekends you know building and updating course materials because it's it's really hard work yeah yeah i you're you're, uh preaching to the choir now A, a lot of the videos the one video I did was talking about video capture techniques and it was like a 40 minute video because it was a step-by-step thing, but that took about 80 hours worth of work in order to get to the point that I could do a 40 hour or a 40 minute video. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, so much goes into this and I have tremendous respect to anybody who who puts the time and effort in to try to make it their best. But uh, Um, but, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, no, I mean, I just kind of, you know, I've been really enjoying this talk and hearing about your journey from then till now. And I was just going to ask if there's anything else that we didn't quite cover that, um, that you wanted to talk about or mention that, uh, you thought would be fun or, um, you know, no, we've gone through the tour journey. Yeah. I really think it's, you know, um, you know, uh, that's all I have for now, but you know, you never know what, you know, what I will do next, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, that's absolutely true. You know, just. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll definitely keep in touch. If you ever do anything gaming related, let me know. And, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I'll, I, I think I already did uh, follow you on Twitter and I'll subscribe to your yeah. blog as well, in case you ever talk about anything else that, uh, that's interesting to me because I, you know, not only just gaming technology and, and computers in general, I'm always all about. So, uh, I'll definitely follow you. And, uh, if people also want to follow your work, uh, I'm assuming Twitter is one of the places cause that's yeah, where I discovered you. One, and then my, my personal blog at... And I guess you can link to that one in the show notes, but I have my you know, my blog here, you know, um, and uh, I can give you the link to that one. 
And also, if yeah. someone has, you know, or curious about the training side, training business, you know, feel free to reach out to me or connect on LinkedIn. And, you know, if you have any questions about training, I've been working with you in the training business for like 12 years. So I really know it, you know, pretty well by now. So if anyone wants to, you know, become a trainer, you know, and you don't know where to start, you know, feel free to reach out, you know, I'm happy, happy to help. I'm sure people would appreciate that. And for people yeah. that want to hire you for your training sessions, are you predominantly Europe only, or do you do uh, globals over uh, Zoom or I something mean, like that? Or for, I mean, for the last two years, I've been doing a remote only, so I do worldwide, you know, training in, in backend, .NET, architecture, authentication, and other and, and other topics. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to do this. This was an enjoyable talk. Uh, I really loved hearing your story about all this stuff and uh, I'll definitely keep in touch. So thank you very much, Tor. Thank you.